So beginning next week, uh, we will jump into considering each one of, of the Ten Commandments. Uh, but before that, uh, we do have four final statements of introduction that we want to make uh, to help us be prepared. And so we're going to pick up tonight with our, our seventh statement, and it's, it's an important statement after all, what, what good is studying the Ten Commandments if we don't know what to do with them? Uh, we've already established that they're, they're needed and they're relevant and they're comprehensive and they're authoritative. But what do we actually do with the Ten Commandments? What, what is their role to actually be practically in our lives? Uh, well, before we answer that question, uh, one final time, I want to read together the whole passage of the Ten Commandments. So look with me, Exodus 20, and beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 17. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So, our seventh statement is this. The Ten Commandments are useful. They are useful. Uh, in particular, the Bible shows us at least three ways in which the commands of God are useful to us. And we often refer to these as the three uses of God's law. And understanding these three uses will help you understand how we're going to apply each of the Ten Commandments as we study them in the weeks ahead. So the first use of the law is called the civil use. So everybody say the civil use. 
So this refers to the fact that God has written these commandments into the consciences of all people for the purpose of ordering societies and governments and establishing justice. Our world is broken. Our world is sinful. But our world is not as bad as it could be. Our world is not as broken as it could be. God has been gracious. And by writing these Ten Commandments into the consciences of people, even the most rank unbelievers have a sense that lying is wrong and murder is wrong and adultery is wrong. And so there's this, there's this restraining factor on our world that comes through the law of God. It's no accident that throughout the history of the world, the moral laws of governments have largely been built on the principles found here in the Ten Commandments. In His common grace, God restrains the wickedness of men by ordaining governments that enforce these moral laws. So do you remember what mankind was like before Noah's flood? Uh, Genesis 6, verse 11, The earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. Can you imagine a world in which it would be unsafe for you to leave your house? Uh, Can you imagine a society in which you are in constant danger of being assaulted or even killed? In some places where governments have broken down, people do live like that. But those places are the exceptions. They're not the rule. Uh, The human governments do not do this perfectly or consistently. And though justice is not always upheld in this world, God really does work through these Ten Commandments in the consciences of men to establish human ordinances and human laws that bring us protection. And some measure of safety. And so we ought to be grateful for the civil use of the law. And the way God works through his law to bring order to societies. As we study the Ten Commandments together, however, our focus is mainly going to be on the other two uses of God's law. So the second use is called the pedagogical use. Everybody say pedagogical and now I'll tell you how to spell it for those of you doing outline. So it's P-E-D-A-G-O-G-I-C-A-L. Pedagogical. P-E-D-A-G-O-G-I-C-A-L. So a pedagogue is a teacher. A pedagogue is an instructor, a tutor. And the idea here is that the Ten Commandments take us by the hand... And lead us to see our need for a Savior. The Ten Commandments tutor us. They instruct us. They teach us that we are guilty sinners. And thereby prepare us for the gospel. Uh, To put it differently, the Ten Commandments serve us as a mirror in which we can see our own depravity. So that we do not put our trust in ourselves but in Christ for salvation. So, Mount Hermon, a a driver won't stop and ask for directions until he's willing to admit that he's lost. A student won't ask for help with her assignment until she's willing to acknowledge she really doesn't know or understand what to do. In the same way, we will never look outside of ourselves for salvation until we've become convinced 
that we are hopeless on our own. We must come to grips with our own sinfulness, with our own crooked hearts. Only then will we run to Jesus for help. Jesus said that he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Until we are ready to admit that we are great sinners, we cannot be saved by Jesus. And therefore, true gospel preaching must always begin with the law. The law tutors us, instructs us, teaches us, and prepares us for the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, A gospel which merely says, Come to Jesus and offers Him as a friend, and offers a marvelous new life, without convincing of sin, is not New Testament evangelism. The essence of evangelism is to start by preaching the law, and it is because the law has not been preached that we have so much superficial evangelism. True evangelism, he says, must always start by preaching the law. So remember the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How would you ask that question? I mean, how would you answer that question if someone asked you that? If your neighbor came to you or if you were uh, sitting by somebody on an airplane or whatever it is and someone said to you, oh, you're a Christian, what, what, what must I do to be saved? How would you answer that question? We might respond by saying, oh, you need to, you need to trust Christ. Right? We might respond by telling them about, about the grace of God. But when this rich young ruler came to Jesus, he responded the opposite way. He responded by preaching the law. He said to that man, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Notice Jesus confronted this man with the Ten Commandments. Why did Jesus respond that way? Why did Jesus respond with law instead of grace? Well, the reason is self-righteous people can't go to heaven. Jesus came to call sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. Jesus came to save those who see their need of him and trust in him alone for salvation. And this man, Jesus knew, was not coming to him out of desperation. This man was not coming out of a a sense of emptiness and, and, and lostness, saying, Jesus, I'm lost, help me. No, this man was coming in confidence. This man was coming full of pride. He, he was wondering if perhaps there might be something lacking that he had failed to do. He felt pretty good about himself. He knew he had done a lot. But, but maybe there was one thing he had missed. And so that's the attitude with which he came to Jesus. And so Jesus reminded this man of the commandments so that he would see that he was a sinner. Of course, do you remember what the man's response was? Oh, all these I've kept from my youth. Right? Uh, This man was making the classic mistake of self-righteousness. He was assuming it's it's other people out there who are wicked, but he, as a good law-abiding Jew, was okay. He, He had kept the commandments. But of course, you and I know better. Uh, Compared to some other people, he might have kept the commandments relatively well. But had he really kept the commandments? Had he never told a lie, not even a half-truth? Had he always shown honor to his father or his mother? Had there never been an adulterous impulse in his heart? Of course not. 
He was a son of Adam, a sinner. And the law of God is what Jesus brought to bear upon his life so that he would see his sin. But mark this. The law of God does not do its work unless it's accompanied by the Spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit that takes hold of the law and uses it to bring conviction and humility and repentance. And that had not yet happened in the life of this man. For him, he was still seeing the law just as a checklist of things to do to, to, do to maintain God's favor. And frankly, he felt like he was doing a pretty good job keeping that list. So then what did Jesus say? He said, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And we're told that when the man heard this, he became very sad for he was very rich. Why would Jesus lay down that specific law for that specific man? Jesus never told all his followers to go sell everything they had and give it to the poor. He gave that specific commandment to that specific man. Why? He was doing it to help that man see that his heart was full of love for the stuff of this world. That this man's heart belonged to his money and his possessions. God was... God would. Jesus was seeking to bring this man to conviction and repentance. Someone might read that story and say, Jesus failed. What a a terrible evangelist Jesus was. Here was a man who came ready to be saved, saying, what must I do? And in the end, the man walks away sad, not saved. But dear friends, that man left better off than he came. Uh, He came full of self-confidence. He came full of self-righteousness. He was far away from God when he first approached Jesus because God resists the proud. But he left having begun to see the depravity of his heart. He left humbled. And God draws near to the humble. We don't know if that man was ever saved, but he was closer when he left that conversation than he was when he first came. So Jesus used the law to awaken this man to his own sinfulness. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the pedagogical use of the law. And as we seek to lead others to Christ, uh, friends, family members, uh, this is the route we must take. Most of the folks that we seek to witness to believe that they're really not that bad off. Sure, they've sinned some, but they're pretty good folks. That's the worldview that most have. That you know, my neighbor down the street. Now that that person's really bad, right? And I, you know, those people I graduated high school with. I mean, some of them are so messed up, and I'm I'm okay. I'm a decent person, right? Um, as long as they see themselves that way, they will be far from truth and far from God and far from salvation. If we're to preach the gospel, we must begin by preaching the law. I was reading a book a few weeks ago written by a man named John Lawson. It was written in the early 1700s. And Lawson was an explorer. And he happened to be exploring this this land called the brand new colonies of South Carolina and North Carolina. And at that time, this, this, these two states, they weren't states, they were, they were wilderness, they were uh, basically lands mostly inhabited by Native Americans. 
Uh, this explorer went on to establish the town of Newburn, and that's where he lived and, and died. But he wrote a record of his experiences traveling through uh, the colonies of North and South Carolina. And in that record, he mentions that the Native Americans were surprised at how many European ships were suddenly coming to their shores. And how the ships just were, kept coming and coming and they kept bringing more and more people. And after observing all of these ships coming with so many Europeans, the Native Americans drew the conclusion that Britain and the European continent must not be very far away. And so some of them got into their canoes and started trying to cross the Atlantic Ocean. But of course they found out very quickly Europe was much further away than they thought. Some had to be rescued by European ships that were arriving in America. Others drowned in the ocean. Their mistake was that they thought the gap between them and Europe must be small. But in fact, the gap between them and Europe was huge. Well, So also, when the Ten Commandments are rightly applied, they help us to see that the gap between us and the holiness that God requires is a massive gap. It's not that we're just a little bit off. It's not we're just, that we're just a little bit away from the perfection that God requires. No, we're, we're not slightly sinful. We're not mostly good with a few mistakes here or there. The Ten Commandments show us the deep corruption of our souls. And they help us to see it with our, that with our own abilities. If we try to, to get to God in our own canoes, we're never going to, to make it. We don't have what it takes. We simply have to find help from somewhere else. Now, by the way, this is almost certainly why God gave most of the Ten Commandments in the negative. You ever wonder about that? Most of the commandments come in the form of, Thou shalt not. Why? Why why give them in the negative? Well, it's because Israel's hard-heartedness needed to be broken. And the negativeness has a a sharpness to it. Especially when you are guilty of doing the very thing that the commandment says, thou shalt not do. When you hear that said, thou shalt not, and you know that you have, it brings conviction. It brings humility. God was doing more than simply instructing Israel in, in his moral standards. He was seeking to bring them to humble faith and repentance. Putting these commandments in the negative most powerfully reveals our sinfulness. Now, be careful here. Don't ever limit the Ten Commandments simply to the negative. So, for example, when the commandment says, Thou shalt not murder, just because it's stated in the negative, that's not the whole sum of what God is saying. He's also saying positively, care for human life. Value human life. Protect human life. There is a positive side of the sixth commandment. But God's spoken in the negative because it cuts. It it brings humility and contrition to hard-hearted people. Similarly, I don't obey the second commandment simply by refraining from worshiping images. I also obey the second commandment by actively bringing to God the kind of worship He has prescribed. In our study of each of the Ten Commandments, you will see that there is a negative side and a positive side to each command. Each command has implications of things we must not do and implications of things that we must do. And every commandment is teaching us to actively honor someone or something. 
So summing all this up about the pedagogical use, here is the the takeaway. As we preach through these Ten Commandments, we will apply them to our lives with the goal of conviction that we would feel afresh our great need for Jesus Christ. Uh, We should pray that God would save anyone in our midst who is lost over the next several weeks. Uh, We should pray that God would use these commandments to teach us, to tutor us in our desperate condition without Christ, so that we will turn to Him and trust Him and deeply love Him. Now, if you're worried because we're still on the seventh statement, let me reassure you, we're not going to say as much about the last three statements. But let's finish the seventh. The last use of God's law is the moral use. The moral use. So in other words, after the law of God has taught us our sinfulness, brought us to repentance, led us to Jesus, we're not then done with it. We don't then lay the law of God aside, just the opposite. Once we become Christians and we're resting in Jesus, the law of God becomes a guide for showing us how to live a life of worship. How to live a life that honors the Savior who has saved us. The Ten Commandments teach us what a life of godliness really looks like. We now have a higher and even better motivation for keeping these Ten Commandments. Because we're not just obeying these laws out of obligation, but out of a desire to honor the God who has now saved us. Once we become Christians, we now know that our God loves us more than we can love ourselves. He's smarter than us. He's he's wiser than us. And so we receive these commandments not just as duties, but as, as gifts, as words of counsel to help our feet remain true on the path of blessing. Mount Hermon noticed the prologue to the Ten Commandments. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, God does not start the Ten Commandments by saying, I'm God, therefore obey me. He could have done that, but He doesn't do that. He says, I am God and I am your Savior. I am your Deliverer. I am the one who has rescued you. In other words, Israel, I have shown my love for you. I have shown my care for you. I have shown my willingness and my ability to do you good. Therefore, in my love, obey me. Israel was not to obey the Ten Commandments to earn God's favor. They were to obey the Ten Commandments because God had already highly favored them. God had already chosen them and delivered them and established them. These were the instructions of how they were to live now that they had been declared His special people. Uh, The Ten Commandments are given in the context of, of grace. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 20. And just, just listen to these verses. Moses says, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? So you see the picture. Child asking mom or dad, what's the meaning of all these commandments that God has given us? Moses says, then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. 
And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before our Lord our God as he has commanded us. So so you see the, the question. The question was about the commandments of God. What is the meaning of the commandments? And how is the father to answer his son? Not by teaching the commandments first, but by telling again the story of how God had loved Israel. By telling again the story of how God had saved Israel. The story of Israel's deliverance. The story of Israel's salvation. And the great work that God had done for them. That was to come first. Then, in light of that salvation. In light of that deliverance. In light of the grace that Israel had received. The children were to be taught. To fear God and keep His commandments. This is exactly what we see over and over again in the New Testament. When we go back to Romans, we just finished Romans 1 through 11, where Paul has taught all of these marvelous truths of God's grace and how God has saved us as sinners through Jesus Christ. And then we're going to go in January to Romans 12. And these chapters, after 1 through 11 of God's grace, Romans 12 is going to begin, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Did you hear the therefore in that verse? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in light of Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. In light of all that God has done for you, in light of all of God's grace, in light of all of God's mercy, therefore, live a holy life of worship. When we go back to Romans, Romans 12, 13, 14, these are very practical chapters. They're instructions about how Christians are to live. But the motivation for living Romans 12, 13, and 14 is Romans 1 through 11 and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's exactly how it is with Israel in the Ten Commandments. The the commandments taught them how to live as God's people. And the Ten Commandments continue to teach us how to live as God's saved people. Paul even draws directly from the Ten Commandments in those later chapters of Romans as he tells us how we are to live. So Mount Hermon, obeying God's law can never bring life. Obeying God's law is the expression of life. Once we've been saved and the Holy Spirit is living inside of us, here are the signs of spiritual life in us. Obedience to God's commands. Christ said that His people would be marked by love. We're to be marked by love. What does love look like? Well, it looks like loving God. It looks like loving others, okay, but what does that look like? Well, it looks like the Ten Commandments. The commandments show us what love in action looks like. A life of obedience to the Ten Commandments is a life of love. The the Ten Commandments are the way of love. The chief fruit of the Spirit is love, and it will be expressed in the form of obedience being lived out to these commands. 
So each week, not only as we take each commandment, am I going to seek to use that to bring us to conviction and to help us love Jesus even more and to be so thankful for his salvation and the mercy and the grace that we have in him. But then we're also going to make practical applications. Now that we've been saved, now that Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, how can we practically live out this commandment in our lives as an expression of our worship to him? So my goal is that each sermon will be a gospel sermon. And my goal is that each sermon will get very practical about how to live out each of the commandments. So the Ten Commandments are useful, and we want to use them well. Now, we're going to race through the final three, so don't be worried. Here we go. Number eight. Number eight. But By the way, I'm going to race through them, but each one of these three statements could be a sermon on their own. So be thankful. Okay, They could have been a sermon on their own. Just take them home and meditate on them. Think about them. You write the sermon to yourself uh, for these three statements. Okay, uh, Number eight. The Ten Commandments are the way of liberty. They are the way of liberty. Uh, this is really important to say because most people see the Ten Commandments from the opposite perspective. They feel that the Ten Commandments are like chains that limit their freedom. Rules always seem like they are taking away our freedom. In fact, many people would hate the idea of studying the Ten Commandments because everything in their flesh says that these Ten Commandments are bondage to them. But James one twenty five, James 2.12, they both speak of God's law as the law of liberty. Why? Because before we are saved... We are in bondage to the very sins that God's law speaks against. The real bondage, the real slavery of human beings is our slavery to our own sin, to our selfishness and our self-love and our greed and our lust and our covetousness. The Ten Commandments present a view of life for when we are no longer in bondage. The Ten Commandments are a picture of the person who is no longer enslaved to sin. It is the opposite of the kind of life that you see in a person who is still addicted to selfishness and self-centeredness. The person described by the Ten Commandments is the free person, living as he was meant to be, no longer enslaved to sin. Does that make sense to you? Okay, I'm going to say it again one more time. The person described by the Ten Commandments is the free person, living as he was meant to be, no longer enslaved to sin. So uh, Duma, I guess is how you say his name, uh, gives a, a good illustration here. He says, think of a fish swimming in the water. Or think of a bird flying in the air. When fish are in the water, they get to live as they were meant to live. They get to be true fish doing fishy things. But you take a fish out of water and suddenly it's in great danger and it cannot do all that it wants to do. So also while a bird is in the air, that bird can fly and swoop and do all the things that birds do. But if that bird becomes injured and is grounded and cannot get into the air, it's suddenly very vulnerable and cannot do what it was made to do. Well, similarly, human beings were made to live in paradise. Paradise is our proper environment and our proper home. 
holiness, moral purity. This is who we were meant to be. It is the environment that we were made for. But because of our sin, this world is now fallen and we are fallen. And enslaved to our sins, we can no longer be the great creatures that God made us to be. Our minds have been affected by sin. Our bodies are affected by sin. Our ability to think and to feel and to act rightly have all been affected. Now that we have been saved, the Spirit is in the process of restoring us back to who we were made to be. The Spirit is bringing us back to real liberty. And that person, the person of who we will be in paradise, is pictured for us in the moral teaching of the Ten Commandments. Here's another way of putting this. Abraham's family had gone into Egypt as a believing people. But over time, Israel began to conform to the ways of the Egyptians. And they became bound to Egyptian thinking and Egyptian habits and Egyptian behaviors. Now, God has saved Israel out of her Egyptian ways. She is free to be Israel again. She is is free to be who God wants her to be. And the Ten Commandments are the ways that God intends for Israel to truly be Israel. But if Israel starts breaking the commandments, if Israel continues to break the commandments, she will simply revert back to the paganism that she knew while she was in Egypt. She will cease to be Israel as God created Israel to be. The Ten Commandments were given to help Israel stay Israel and not become pagan. Similarly, the Ten Commandments are given to us so that we can be who God has made us to be and so that we will not revert to our pre-salvation ways. These commandments are not chains for us. They are expressions of the life that God has created for us to live They are the expression of life as it was meant to be. Unfallen life. Life without the chains of sin. Okay, there's a lot more I want to say about that. We'll talk maybe more about it on Wednesday night if you'd like. Number nine. Number nine. The Ten Commandments are the way of joy. They are the way of joy. We simply need to have the right attitude about the commandments. They should not be loathsome to us. Uh, If they are, the problem is not with the commandments. The problem is, is in our hearts if they are loathsome to us. The Ten Commandments speak of the way of blessing. They are God's gifts of wisdom to us in our folly. The Ten Commandments are light for our darkness. They are directions for a people who are lost and can no longer tell their left from their right. So when we realize what a gift God's law is, especially and how the law brings us to Jesus himself, we should love the law and rejoice in it. How does Psalm 1 describe the blessed man? Remember that word blessed means favored, but it also means happy. It also means deeply joyful. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. What is the chief characteristic that the psalmist says marks those who are under God's blessing? They take pleasure in the commands of God. Do you take pleasure in the commands of God? 
Over and over again we hear this in the Psalms. Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Psalm 119.70, their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. Psalm 119.77, let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Psalm 119.174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Our joy is first and foremost in God. But because the law comes from God, because it is a gift of love from God, because the law helps us honor God, because it brings God's eye of blessing more upon us, and because the law helps us be more like Him, we ought to find joy in God's commandments. One person has said, The law is the melody whose notes consist of joyful living before God. The law is the melody whose notes consist of joyful living before God. What does the blessed life look like? What does the life of joy look like? It looks like the life of love described in the Ten Commandments. Well, finally, number ten. The Ten Commandments are Christ-centered. They are Christ-centered Mount Hermon, what we have in these commandments is a description of the righteousness of Christ. We learn in these commandments what Christ values. We see in these commandments the principles that Christ kept as He walked this earth. When a sinner like me believes on Jesus and His righteousness is imputed to my account, this is the righteousness we're talking about. As we've seen, these commandments were given to show us our need for Jesus. These commandments were given to lead us to Jesus. And when we have believed and been saved by His blood and His righteousness, these are the commandments that show us how to follow Him, how to walk in His footsteps. The Ten Commandments are the path of Christ followers. The Ten Commandments find their substance in Jesus Christ. Uh, John Frame first opened my eyes to this. So think about it for a minute. Jesus is the God of the first commandment to whom all worship is due. Jesus is the one true image of God, which is why we're not to give worship to any other image, as we read in the second commandment. In the third commandment, Jesus is the revealed name of God to which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on the last day. Jesus is the name above all names. In the fourth commandment, Jesus is the one to whom every Sabbath day points because He brings ultimate and eternal rest for our souls. In the fifth commandment, we remember that Jesus is the one who brings many sons to glory, and we're to honor Him the way Isaiah taught, as our everlasting Father. In the sixth commandment, Jesus is the ultimate giver of life. Jesus is the one who gives life abundant to His people. Jesus is the one who overcomes the power of death. In the seventh commandment, Jesus is the bridegroom of His people, forever faithful, making His bride clean by the washing of the water of the Word. 
In the eighth commandment, Jesus is our greatest possession, our inheritance from God, which is unfading and imperishable and will never be taken away from us. In the ninth commandment, Jesus is the truth, the one in whom all reality exists and is sustained, the one for whom all truth exists. All truth is his truth and points to him. And finally, in the tenth commandment, Jesus is our peace, our contentment, the satisfaction of our souls, meeting every need of his people in this world and in the next. When we see these commandments rightly, we see that their substance is in Jesus Christ. So Mount Hermon, join with me in praying that we would love Jesus more through this study. Uh, Join me in praying that our hearts will burn with love for him as we see him in these commandments. Uh, Let's pray that this law will be within us, that these commandments would describe us, that what God values would be what we value, and that we would know what it is to walk in the way of liberty, the way of joy, and the way of Christ. Let's pray.